It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 103, Nathan and the Prophetic Rebuke. Proverbs 27.5 Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. In this episode, the prophet Nathan is used by God to be a classic example of a prophetic rebuke. And further, we see how a repentant man runs back to God And by his actions, we learn what to do when a man of God falls from grace. Second Samuel Chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. He shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. So this is fascinating. David's friend Nathan, the prophet, the same one who delivered the word about David's inheritance and the kingdom would be David's prophet again, but this time it would be a rebuke for his sin. Nathan starts by telling a story that sounds real, and it appears he came to him in the place of David's judgment seat where he hears cases of state. At this time, Nathan says a man who had everything he ever needed was visited by a stranger who came to visit and he needed to feed him. Instead of taking one of his own lambs to feed the stranger, he took a neighbor's only lamb to feed the stranger. Think with me here. Who's the stranger? The stranger is the devil, or the spirit of lust. The devil had legal rights to David due to generational inequity, and David was too weak because his relationship with God had faded, and he had fed his lust in a horrible way. And because of open doors of sin and a lack of relationship that shielded him from sin, the devil came knocking. Also, let's remember how David says that this man should repay for his actions four times over. This will come back around as well. The account continues. Can you smell a setup by Nathan? And he's just getting started. Second Samuel twelve seven. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. 
This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. Wow, that's massive. Nathan tricked him. And you've got to picture it. You're the man, he yells and points at David. You're the man. You are the sinner. I have a coworker who used to say he was the man. But if he only knew about this scene, he probably wouldn't have said those words so many times. For Nathan rebuked him with these words, you are the man. I imagine the fear of the Lord seared from Nathan's finger like the force in Star Wars. I mean, seriously, David must have been immobilized by the aggressiveness of his rebuke. Full on, and he doesn't just stop there. He pronounces judgment, inner family strife, family rebellion, the loss of his concubines, and worst part was these words. Now therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despise me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Out of your household, calamity will come. How horrible was this judgment? And David is cut, and he gets smashed to the heart. He's never going to be the same after this experience. So now we begin the next chapter of David's life. It's a downhill journey to the end. He's achieved its highest points, and now he has sinned. There will be some cool stories coming up, yet we will see also some of the most prophetic moments of his life are actually yet to come. Yet all the while, David pays the rest of his life for this temporary moment of physical pleasure called sin. The long-term damage of sin always outweighs its very short-term pleasures. David probably collapses due to the weight of conviction and fear of the Lord which accompanied the prophetic rebuke. 2 Samuel 12:13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. It's like this whole thing was already worked out in the spiritual realms. And David's sinful action had surrendered legal rights to the devil, and he was granted permission to spread death and strife throughout David's family. And Nathan was the voice echoing the legal judgment already sealed in heaven. And immediately the judgment starts. Second Samuel twelve fifteen. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. So the immediate judgment is severe and that David's son with Bathsheba falls. David pleads with God and fasts day and night for six days, but David's cry for mercy was not heeded. 
possibly because David did not grant Nathan's fictitious shepherd mercy, but instead required him to repay fourfold. And there will eventually be four of David's own children that will die before the end of his life. 2 Samuel 12:18. On the seventh day the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought while the child was still living, he didn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David decided that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied. He is dead. Then David got up from the ground, and after he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went in the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. His attendants asked him, Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. All right, so there's something really cool about this scene. The first is David still has the ability to surprise the people of his day. The custom was to mourn by fasting and wearing sackcloth after a person's death, but David's behavior was the opposite. He did this in intercession, but upon his death, he cleaned up. By doing this, David was flipping another tradition on its head. Unfortunately, this tradition didn't remain flipped, for by the time of Jesus, death mourning was such a spectacle that professional mourners were hired to cry at funeral processions. The other piece here is that David, after his loss, got up and worshipped, which is an astounding feat. David could have been bitter against God, for he purposely went to God in worship, not because he felt like it, but because he knew that was best. The death of a loved family member is enough to destroy a person, but David went immediately into God's presence and received healing and reconciliation with God, and further, he worshipped him after a loss, one of the most unique worship scenes to find in Scripture. God, in turn, blessed David and Bathsheba, despite their sin, for God works together for the good of all who love him. 2 Samuel 12, 24. Then David comforted of his wife, Bathsheba, and he went to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. This Jedidiah, whose name means beloved of Jehovah, will become Solomon, the next king of Israel. All right, so I should probably end here, but something that is more of a bridge for a future scene occurs, so we'll cover it. Second Samuel twelve twenty six. Meanwhile, Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and captured the royal citadel. Joab then sent messengers to David, saying, I have fought against Rabbah and taken its water supply. Now muster the rest of the troops and besiege the city and capture it. Otherwise, I will take the city and it will be named after me. So clearly David stayed home and didn't go campaigning with his men, and Joab had finally torn into the Ammonite capital and was forcing it into starvation, and the revenge was about to be complete from a few episodes back of the beard trimming and the humiliation. But I find it interesting how Joab talks to David now. Now come and muster the men and take the city, or I will name it after myself. 
Joab, a man of power, and the commander of the army is flexing his muscles with David. Second Samuel twelve twenty nine. So David mustered the entire army and went to Rabbah and attacked and captured it. David took the crown from their king's head, and it was placed on his own head. It weighed a talent of gold, and it was set with precious stones. David took a great quantity of plunder from the city and brought out the people who were there, consigning them to labor with saws and iron picks and axes, and he made them work at brick-making. David did this to all the Ammonite towns. Then he and his entire army returned to Jerusalem. According to Josephus, the crown had a precious stone called a sardinx in the center of it. And from here on out, David wore this crown as his own. I researched the weight of a talent of gold, and I found it can weigh anywhere from 22 pounds to 110 pounds. Even if this crown was 22 pounds, David could not have worn this crown consistently. And consistent with his relationship with God now, David writes a psalm, and it's a glorious psalm. Psalm 21, for the director of music, a song of David. The king rejoices in your strength, Lord. How great is his joy in the victories you give. You have granted him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. You came to greet him with rich blessings and placed a crown of pure gold on his head. He asked you for life and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. Through the victories you give, your glory is great. You have bestowed on him splendor and majesty. Surely you have granted him unending blessings and made him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. Through the unfailing love of the Most High, he will not be shaken. Your hand will lay hold on all your enemies. Your right hand will seize your foes. When you appear for battle, you will burn them up in a blazing furnace. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and his fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth, their prosperity from mankind. Though they plot evil against you and devise wicked schemes, they cannot succeed. You will make them turn their backs, and when you aim at them with drawn bow, be exalted in your strength, Lord. We will sing and praise your might. So the reason we call this a bridge is what David does with the crown. This psalm states the crown was placed on David's head. Josephus confirms it became his crown though I doubt he could have worn it consistently. I'd like to suggest this crown was not the crown for David, and David should have worn something a bit humbler for him, especially since his recent sin with lust, adultery, greed, jealousy, murder, and betrayal. Adding some more pride wouldn't hurt, right? All right, think with me here. Gold is rare and is generally the most valuable resource on the planet. David probably had more of a modest crown prior to taking the Ammonite crown. But now he has a huge crown made of pure gold that he has taken from another king. It seems to me that the seizure, well, that was due to war, but the fact that he wears this crown from here on out seems a bit prideful and not very humble. And honestly, any crown this large must have been obnoxious to those in court. So something significant will occur in a future episode that is due to David's pride. And I can't help but mention this scene and the huge gold crown that rests upon his head as a reminder of human pride. For it was our Lord who in complete humility went to the cross to die for our sins, 
wearing a crown of thorns. Well, we've covered a lot in this episode, from Nathan's rebuke to David's repentance and revenge over the Ammonites. But from here on out, we've got to see there's something different with David. I imagine David, prior to this significant sin with Bathsheba, aging gracefully and looking more or less younger than his age because the light of God working through him. But it's like something really starts to shift in him. And we'll read about it where he's challenged in battle like never before, and he's nearly killed in battle. And we read in Psalms how his health begins to fall at times. And for a Bible great, he doesn't live a long life. It's not the hard life in the wilderness, but more or less the pain and regret and shame he faces for his sin that troubles him daily and the horrible words of judgment that trouble him every day. For over the next month or two, we will be covering the small family squabbles and the internal strife that grow into full rebellion. And in the end, the judgment of God will be so complete before David's death, he will have lived through the death of four of his sons and true fulfillment of David's own words to Nathan that the greedy shepherd should have to pay back fourfold what he took. To conclude this episode of Message to Kings, instead of focusing on the godly rebuke, I want to focus on what we do when a someone stumbles and a man of God sins. The problem is that we sometimes put too much faith in man and his example of Christ to us. But man always fails because man is man. Man is not God. We have to put our focus on Jesus. When we place too much value on men of God, our pastors or evangelists or those in authority, and put more weight on their words and their relationship with God than over our relationship with God alone, we find ourselves hurting and bitter if they fail. I remember some time back when a man of God fell, and the word was going around that God was still on the throne. And when people asked, how are you handling this situation? Everyone would say, God is still on the throne. It got kind of old and cheesy after a while, but it really served a point. Jesus never fails. Man does. We have to keep our eyes on Jesus. For this reason, we end the podcast with worship, just like David after he lost his son, and just like we should daily, and just as we should if any man of God fails. Our focus and eyes are on Jesus. Thank God that Jesus remains on the throne, even as David sinned and even as other men of God have sinned in the past. And thank God we do not put our faith in them, but Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came as a man to redeem all mankind, who now sits at the right hand of God Almighty in heaven.
Thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. Stay tuned next week as David continues to reign in Jerusalem and deal with new problems that he hasn't ever seen before. Feel free to visit the website, messagetokings.com, or if you want to chat, email us at messagetokings at gmail.com.